Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host, Salim Qasim. Um, and this week I am joined by our intern, Nade. I thought I was chief intern. Chief, chief. I in thought I'd been promoted. In fact, the best intern genuinely we've ever had, um, Nade. And, and I probably because of your like academic background, that's the case. You're like a Cambridge graduate lawyer. I am. I am for my sins. We know. usually have like year nine students coming in. So. <laughs> Is that the bar? <laughs> year nine students. You, okay. You, you, well, yeah, you, I've you've done it. You've jumped to the, the front of the pile. I don't think this it needed. This is a career highlight. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I mean, so so you've been interning with us for like three weeks now. Three weeks. Yeah. Uh, this is your second last day. And how have you found your time? It's been it's been a, an immersive experience into a side of me that I didn't know. I, I I don't know. I I feel like I'm connected with my roots in Edgware. I've been I've been used to sort of going into the city and sort of selling my soul. So funny enough, you live like 15 minutes down the a road. 15 minute walk. Yeah. That's, so that's a good I, life. I've been enjoying it, and it, it's a fun, creative environment that um, I've it's been a privilege to be a part of. So that's I've very kind it. of you to say. Yeah. I didn't even like have to pay you to do that. I would have given you I, money. You're not paying me. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is a good We point. need to have a conversation after. Um, but no, so uh, so actually on this podcast, I mean, number one, um, if people are interested in, in interning for the Muslim Vibe, if you want to be in, in, in Nade's seat, um, just get in touch with us. Like mm. we're, we're always looking, uh, like we're always happy to have people um, help out, get involved with the work. And, and I think- As it, long as they're not better than me. As long, they, they won't be better than you, that's Obviously, fine. But yeah. you've set the bar too high. But anyways, no, the, the thing I wanted to say is that like, you, you can probably attest to this, but like we- if there's a willingness on 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 someone's side to like get involved like we'll we'll just kind of chuck everything at yeah, you and, and, yeah. and really let you kind of get involved i think that's the beauty of it i think you, you can sort of go to graduate schemes and you're sort of it's very it's very top down whereas whereas here there's a sort of dynamic but it's in, also because we're a very small entity with yeah a very small yeah team. yeah and you're, you're sort of filling gaps around around yeah. the place and you're doing stuff that you that you wouldn't expect to be doing um, and it's fun. Let's it's, be honest. It's fun, man. Coming from coming from corporate to this is it's a it's good life. It's fun. Yeah, I like talking about work now, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, actually, you 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 feature in in the in the guest and in, in the kind of podcast topic as well. So we're we're speaking today to Hussein Kesvani mm. um, about his book "Follow Me, Achi: The Online World of British Muslims." Um, Hussein's been on the podcast before. Uh, but I think when when uh, when you came in, I, in fact, on like your first day when you came in, I was yeah. telling you about the podcast and and you suggested a couple of names and one of them was Hussein. Um, and you had read the book and then you brought the book in. Yeah. And we talked about it some more and we thought that would be an interesting conversation to have. And also like some of the other stuff that he's gone on to do in kind of his journalistic career and yeah. deep diving into subcultures. He's yeah, he's the expert at that, um, and so I think that's why he made for an he, he made for an interesting podcast. Yes. Yeah, and we kind of um, we talked to him about um, the book, some of the chapters in the book, some of the particular kind of subcultures that he's he's he's, he's gone into, um, and then generally the online world. I, I think that for a lot of people that don't necessarily commit as much time as as he does, or as as quite a lot of us, like I, I spend probably more time than most because I, you know, involved yeah, with the Muslim yeah, vibe. Yeah. But to then understand like the nuances of the online world and and online personas and everything else, it's, yeah. it's a very kind of interesting um, space. So uh, yeah, I think without without further ado, here's our conversation with Hussein. Uh, so salam, Hussein. Alaikum salam. How are you? 
Good, thank you. Thank you for joining us no again on the podcast. No worries. I don't know if you remember, you, you, you've been on a long time ago. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah, I remember like how long it took me to get to you. So. <laughs> and and, and it, it's no surprise then that this time you were due to come down, but somehow weren't able to. Right? Yeah, um, After... <laughs> it definitely wasn't because I didn't want to spend an hour and a half on the train. Um, no 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 it's fine <laughs> as i as i said to you before we, we've had like half an inch of snow and so it, it makes sense that this the, the trains would kind of shut down as a result um <laughs> allegedly but moving moving on um so I, I think there's a couple of things that the last time we spoke about um there was stuff around the barcelona terror attacks that had happened at the time yeah and and also you were in the process of writing a book mm -hmm. Um, so you were conducting interviews and going around and speaking to everyone in the Muslim community for this upcoming book yeah. um, that at the time didn't have a title, yeah. but it had given you a lot of quite interesting insight. And now I think we're happy to say that book has been published um, some time ago, actually. Yeah, last year. Um, almost a year. Last year. Almost a year since it got published. And, and it's it's there's loads in there about kind of everything. In fact, I, I just saw, so, so Nade, who's... who's um, mm leaving us sadly tomorrow, but he's interning <laughs> with us at the moment. He's he's read the book cover to cover a couple of times, I think. And um, he mentioned that he, he thought he saw TMV in there. Um, yeah. And, and so I saw that that the interview that you did with me yeah. um, bore some sort of fruit in terms of the, the end product. So I'm, I'm happy to kind of see that, I guess. That's great. Um, but you've gone around basically to, to everyone. Well, um, not, ev not everyone. As many people as I could in a very short period of time. And also... Yeah. Um, bearing in mind that I was doing this while kind of like balancing quite a demanding day job uh, mm. along with other stuff. So I did like, I, I feel like I maxed as much energy as I could, but I also know that it wasn't, it, it may have tried to broaden out what we think about, how we think about Muslims in Britain, but it's definitely not the entire picture. Like there's always going to be groups and always going to be people who will say either we were not represented at all, or we were underrepresented or, um along those lines i guess and i think also what's interesting is that as, as time goes on um the book becomes increasingly dated um yeah. so when, yeah. when we spoke and i don't mean that in like an attacking way it sounds a bit harsh <laughs> no, but, no, but no, what i mean is, by that yeah is... i was gonna like this is like the thing that i think about like every time i talk about this which is just like it's incredibly dated right now and given if like a couple of years it will just kind of be this like uh almost like a fossil um, it'll be a history book yeah it'll be like this was this was this was relevant <laughs> for like a very small period of time in which it was the window in which it was published in um yeah um so in terms of uh the conversation we wanted to have today we i want to discuss some stuff around the book but i think it's interesting for people to understand and appreciate and i don't think there's anyone better to speak about um the online space probably than yourself just considering how much you've done um and and how many subcultures you've looked at Let's jump into actually one of the the, the, the weirdest things that I think you've done um, was was looking at the uh, the community of of people who use psychedelics um, yeah. to get closer to God. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, if we can just start there because it's just the most absurd thing I've I've probably ever read. Um, <laughs> not just you. In terms, yeah, of, not just you. Yeah. Um, so can you? How how did that all kind of come okay, about? So. This was a section of the book that didn't make it into the book because it wasn't really internet focused, but it was one of the things that I was thinking about in terms of subcultures. And my intention was to look at different ways in which people express faith. So like 
the thing that the kind of premise I started out with was that everyone that I spoke to was very confidently Muslim. Like whatever views that they had about the world, whatever experiences that they had, um, they would always kind of very confidently say, I'm Muslim first. So I was interested in looking at different ways in which people's practice and drugs was a really interesting component for two reasons. First was because I had grown up reading um, an author called Michael Muhammad Knight, who is a very controversial author in the Islamic studies space in the sense that he is a um, revert Muslim scholar um, based in the US who kind of made his name on the punk rock scene and the drug scene. Um, one of his like most notable books, which is called The Duckle Cause, which is kind of like part fictionalized, but part biography, is a story about how he traveled around the US with a bunch of punk rock Muslims who were practicing, but they also kind of incorporated psychedelics and other forms of like substances into practice. And the book was a study into the history of Islam and drugs and that kind of range from alcoholic substances to marijuana to um, LSD, etc. Um, and obviously it was a controversial book when you come from communities where, or you come from a type of yeah, learning. It sounds like it. Right, you come from a type of learning which is like all drugs are kind of haram um, or that you like makru or like you should not be kind of, you should mm. like be very wary of them. Even to the point where some Muslims are very wary about drinking caffeine um, or drinking a lot of caffeine for that reason. Um, I came across this yeah, group just by searching. Yeah. So like the way that I find stories and the way that I find communities is that I spend a lot of time online just going through like various random Facebook groups. Um, and Facebook is very good in the sense that it, like once you join enough weird groups, it will recommend you more. So I've joined <laughs> like dozens of like bizarre Bitcoin groups and like weird astrology sects and kind of things that border on kind of, you know, religious cults, but like incorporate like occultism and stuff. It's all like really, really strange, but I find it really fascinating just like having an insight into this. And when I was kind of looking at Muslim subcultures, um, I came across this group that was then called the Psychonauts. And I was interested in what that was. And it was like this very small group of mostly American Muslims who would talk about incorporating drugs into practice or kind of looking at scripture and being and talking about like islamic poetry and how that was influenced by psychedelic substances and drugs and stuff like that and it wasn't a way of kind of saying that drugs is okay in islam but it was more of a way of like talking about individualized practice um hmm. in the group i found that there were like a couple of british guys so i got in touch with them and i was like i'm thinking about writing this book and i wondered if we could talk because i just want to see whether there's a thing we spoke for like a few weeks and then, and this was like round about, uh, this was the beginning of last year almost, like, I think. Um, they just met, mentioned that like a couple of friends of theirs were doing a um, uh, Tawasu session in Brixton and would I be interested in coming? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come down. And my initial thing was like, I want to go down just as, a, as an observer and I just want to see what's going on. Um, but then my editor, who is very, very <laughs> smart, but also doesn't necessarily encourage me to do all the best things, was like, maybe you should try do some of it. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should, because that would make a really fun story. And I was very careful about what I did. Like, I wasn't in any kind of like real health risk. I'm actually, when I do all these bizarre things, I'm kind of, I'm very careful about how I do stuff. When we talk about 
the troll thing, I'll kind of go into more detail about that. But it was a very kind of like, I just want to immerse myself in this and see what's up and see if there's any legitimacy into what they say. And that's how that piece came about. The only reason it didn't make the book and it made, um, and I published it on Mel Magazine, which is um, the magazine where I, where my day job is, where I work. Um, but the only reason it didn't make the book was because it wasn't necessarily internet focused. It was more like, this was just a small group, but online culture didn't necessarily play that much into like the way that they experienced faith. <laughs> I, I was wondering, so did you sort of have a conflict with taking the drugs? Was it something that you were you were fine with or did you sort of feel that battle within yourself? Because it's, it's a, yeah. as you say, it's a personal approach to Islam uh, and, and- Yeah, no, I did. I, I feel a lot of guilt whenever I do all this stuff. Um, and it is that conflict of being kind of a practicing Muslim and being like, is this stuff that necessarily um, is kind of right for my practice. But then at the same time, I kind of, I was interested in just seeing how other people interpreted faith because to go back to the book, like if you read between the lines, what I'm really talking about is conflict. And what I'm talking about is trying to explore the boundaries between faith and culture and kind of individualized faith and cultural obligation and duty. And um, and in the course of doing so, I'm talking to characters and I'm talking to people who are having those struggles between the way that they grew up and trying to be true to themselves as individuals, but also true to themselves and their faith. So a lot of the people that I speak to are ones who say, I grew up in kind of an austere conservative environment where I didn't really feel connected to Islam. And over time, rather than rejecting Islam entirely, I've charted my own path. And I would prefer not to abandon Islam, but to kind of practice it in terms that I recognize more and I feel as much truer to my relationship between me and Allah than to kind of reject it. So for me, it was more like trying to understand other people, trying to put myself in their shoes. Um, and in so doing, not necessarily kind of hoping that that would um, better my practice, but more to kind of just broaden my understanding. So I think there was a mixture mm. of like guilt and conflict mixed with, I just want to really understand other people. And that's mm. part of my job, but that's also part of my kind of journey. And you don't really make any changes. And you're also you're not really sure of who you are until you kind of experience what other people are going through. That's my opinion mm. anyway. So, so I think just from a, as a as a TMV disclaimer, <laughs> um, we're not condoning drug taking of any kind. No, no. Uh, and I want to make that absolutely right, clear. Right. And I'm not either. I just want to make that very clear because I think there were a few people but, who like read my stuff and they're like, oh, cool. You did all this stuff. So that was making OK. And I'm like, no. <laughs> No, it doesn't. I'm just like there's a stupid a, guy. The, the, who, I, like, I guess the thing is, there's like a there's like a conflict for yourself in terms of, as you said, reconciling what your faith means to you. Yeah. Um, and then also like immersing yourself in subcultures. And I think there's actually a very important role that you play in that because even like with the book itself, being able to, being able to provide a snapshot of the of the British Muslim community. Mm. Um, and 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 demonstrating and explaining for for at sometimes even outsiders who haven't understood the depth of of what people do and where they go and how they practice and everything else, mm. it's actually really important to understand that. And the internet's only given light to that. Yeah. So you know there might be one person sat in a in, in a flat somewhere in like Brixton that that does this, mm. but now all of a sudden he's able to find a community of others like him, right? Um, like-minded individuals, and and that's I think in a big way the internet's given us that. Yeah. It's given us that kind of platform to to find others like us yeah. um, and, and to kind of congregate in our own different ways. And, and 
you're just bringing that to light now now yeah. when when i first nader was actually the one that mentioned this article to me and when i first saw that i was just like oh god this is a bit much i don't know if i want to discuss it but then but, but, but the reason is because like i for me like from a moral perspective like i don't know if i would be comfortable to to be in your position and to, to take those yeah. drugs even though you said you exhibited the guilt and everything else but then to openly admit to having having done that yeah um whilst like i feel like the content in the article serves a purpose there still is that um that that question mark that kind of hangs over that right yeah and as I you mean, said sorry yeah. sorry if i can if i can just add one more thing and i guess yeah, there's a sure. question like like you mentioned you know someone's going to look at that and be like oh well he's done that and he's okay so like why can't i yeah. is there not also that kind of moral responsibility that hangs over your own self for anything that you do and then publish um no this is a question that like i still struggle to answer because i kind of tried to make it very clear that i'm not a religious authority and i'm not kind of a moral authority and that my kind of my interests and my role are more of an observer and more as someone who is trying to kind of work out stuff himself and i think that and, you know, and, it, and I struggle because on the one hand, it's like sometimes you can't prevent people from looking up to you or like kind of like taking influence mm -hmm. from you. Um, and it's harder when you're not like trying to seek that. Like I actively try to try and go out like to not take up positions and, you know, roles that would position me to be any sort of like moral figure or someone mm. who you look up to like i i i'm also very careful even when i do things like you know muslims going into journalism and stuff like i'm very careful about what i communicate and like why i think that my work is like somewhat unique and not necessarily something that you should emulate let alone kind of put on a resume of any kind um and it and the reason like i, I find that difficult to talk about is just because for me, I use my writing and I use my work as a way of exploring these kind of conflicts that I've had with, with faith individually. And in a way that like I've had for a long time and I never really got the chance to, uh, what's the right word? Like I never really got the chance to kind of interrogate because um, I grew up in a very conservative, I mean, I guess like our, fa like our families are all very similar. Um, but I grew up in a family which was very kind of like culturally bound and where Islam was like important, but it was important within kind of like a wider cultural context. So there was less in terms of my upbringing about understanding particular aspects of like Islamic theology and more about, well, it's your culture and it's your obligation. So these are your duties and these are your responsibilities. And these are non-negotiable things. Um, and over time, like my work has tried to explore that and the people that I've reported on and talked about and written about are all kind of exploring those types of conflicts as well. And I think that's a legitimate thing. So for me, like my role is just to kind of say that, look, these people exist and these conflicts exist. And actually the story at hand is that these are people who are trying to explore these conflicts themselves because the institutions that are around them are not necessarily either aware of it or they're not necessarily doing enough to kind of counter those impulses. Um, and it's something that like we should be paying attention to. So for me, it's more just like, I just want to be part of a journey that's already happening. Like I'm not someone who's saying, you know, your Islam could be a hundred percent better if you like 
dropped acid. Like, I'm definitely not saying that. I also don't believe that in any way, right? Like, I think even in the article, I'm kind of like, I had a bit of a trip, it was weird, but like, I don't think it really connected me to Islam in like any meaningful way. Um, and But that's not the same with everyone. But it was also like, these people would be like dropping acid with or without me, right? And they would be talking mm. about it with or without me. So as a reporter, I'm kind of like, well, if this stuff exists and it's important and it's like a different type of phenomena, then it's worth kind of putting out in the public and just adding to the conversation and adding to our understanding of how young British Muslim culture actually exists rather than what we would like it to exist as, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. If, if I can, I guess, lighten the mood with a slight change of topic and, and discuss your, your trolling antics, <laughs> um, I'm just going to read a tweet that you've, you've put oh, out. No. to okay. a, a, right. This was in response to a British political activist and the author of The Fall of Western Man, a guy called Mark Collett. I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't even remember uh, doing tweet- this. Oh my God, okay. Okay, okay so he, he tweeted time, saying, yeah. Muslims bought this beautiful church in Birmingham and now have converted it into a mosque. This is how the UK is being transformed. You replied by saying, Mark, have you heard about the Muslim family who are buying up cafes around the country and overcharging white people when they order coffee by classifying it as soup? <laughs> Something to investigate, in my opinion. Um, not even the worst childish one. stuff. Yeah, not even the worst I, one. No, I know, I know. This was, this was just, this this is was just taster, yeah. one of many. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a, a series that, of, of pieces of, of, of piece of tweets that you've put out about your cousin um you said really proud of my cousin <laughs> really proud of my cousin who's just passed his citizenship exam today a retreat would mean a lot to him yeah um and it's a picture of Raheem Kassam who is of no relation to myself and uh a a, a far-right activist I don't know what you would what you would call him yeah I don't even know what he's up to these days he's beyond I mean, labels I yeah. Think, yeah that man but at, at the time he was he was he was uh I think the chief editor of Breitbart London yeah um, and, and was very kind of vocal and active online. There was another picture of him that you posted holding a gun. Um, and you said, guys, I regret to inform that since arriving in Britain, my cousin has become radicalized. <laughs> Menly Phillips was right after all. Um, <laughs> I guess, w- w- like, what are you, what are you, what, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you trying to do I'm, with all I'm this? I'm bored. I get bored a lot. Um, okay, so there's like, we can like take it in two ways. The real reason is that I'm just generally bored. And like, again, I spend a lot of time online and I spend a lot of time in like leftist spaces. And I grew up on like a long internet culture and internet culture has had a long history of trolling. Uh, And, you know, I don't know if any of you guys like hung out in forums uh, or like were forum guys, but shit posting and trolling and all this stuff with kind of like making jokes and everything was a part, like a big part of forum culture. So, on a lot of people who kind of grew up in those spaces just took it to like Twitter and Facebook and everything. Um, And I think it also like, for me, some of those things have become notable just because of like the time that we live in where it's one where there's a lot of kind of like anti-Muslim hatred and abuse that happens primarily online, or at least kind of that's how it sort of formulates and conjugates. And there was a part of me that kind of got a bit frustrated with people who were trying to tackle that with sincerity, not because it wasn't necessarily like, not because they had bad intentions, but because it was fundamentally not the way that like internet culture worked, which was that into the internet communication online is like inherently cynical in my opinion. So to kind of feed sincerity into that almost like feeds the cynic- like feeds the cynicism on the other side. And that the way that you can like defang people and kind of make them feel a bit dumb and stupid is by taking them on a bit of like a roller coaster where they're not necessarily sure how to respond. 
Um, so what started is me just being very bored and kind of messing around with Raheem Kassam because like I knew who he was because he was like a big conservative party guy when I was in university. Um, and he used to come to, I used, I went to York University, which is notably like has the biggest young conservative society in, in the country. So he used to come down there a lot. And I knew who he was because like when someone's like, oh yeah, there's like this brown Muslim guy who's like part of the Tories. And it's like, oh, that's a weird thing to kind of say. I wonder what he is. And then you realize that, oh, he's like kind of insane as well. Um, so when you kind of see him on like this whole Trump wave and you're like, oh, this guy who... I knew at Union like was a bit of a, re a social reject and a bit of like a loser in some way. I won't like say too much in case like like I, I end up libeling him by accident. Um, but when uh, he suddenly like this big character who's getting interviewed on Newsnight and stuff and really taken seriously, I just wanted to be like, look, you're still like this dumb guy that I remember, <laughs> and this is the best way of showing you how to do that. And I think that like. Um, bringing it to like a level of humor that very few people can access but people just find inherently funny is a good way of like defanging and that's like just developed over time but again like i don't want to think too much i don't think too much into it it's really a lot of it is like i spend a lot of time on trains traveling um i live quite far away from like um <laughs> where i work and everything so um i spend a lot of my time like procrastinating and that is like the product of it so so how do you sort of reconcile because i think we were sort of discussing you before the podcast oh, no. and we, we were trying to fit, all, all figure out things. who you are. It was are. all good things, just to, to um, be clear. And from following you on, on Twitter, you've, you've got sort of multiple sides of your uh, personality. When you yeah. scroll through the, your feed, you'll have one one tweet which sort of is talking about the, the latest riots and protests in, in India. And then another one will be talking about coffee versus soup. So, yeah. <laughs> so how, how, how do you um, reconcile the sort of serious journalist side of yourself with the, oh, with the troll? And does yeah, that I denigrate? I don't. It's, completely, me okay, it's completely messed up to a degree. I'm very fortunate that like I work at a publication that allows me to kind of do all this stuff, but also lets me write semi-serious things. Um, mm. I don't know if I'd be able to do that if I like worked at the BBC or even at the Guardian and stuff. Um, I don't think your timeline would give you much. Uh, yeah, you you would get sacked at the BBC. Let's be, <laughs> yeah. let's be frank. Well, I, I, I'd be sacked, but I'd be sacked for like really confusing reasons. So like, mine would be like you call someone in Ohio to like ring up, and this is a true story, like to ring up like Saint uh, Saint Thomas's Hospital because they think that there's like a rogue Muslim going around like converting <laughs> babies to Islam. Um, yeah, these, you know, these, these these tweets were actually hilarious. One of my favorite tweets. But that actually, but, you, but that actually happened, right? And like, I got. A but you, right? so, so so just <laughs> just just. I mean, let's rewind. Let's rewind. Yeah. What, what was the what were the kind okay. of content or the kind of tweets okay. we were putting the, out? The context is important here. So I was finishing up my book. This was at the end of 2018. I was finishing up my book. I was teaching at State University, New York. Um, so I was in Albany, which I don't know if any of you have been there, but upstate New York is very different from New York City. New York City is very exciting. There's always things to do. Upstate New York, there's nothing. It's basically just like being in Surrey, right? It's boring, suburban, <laughs> um, bland, like transport finishes after like 6 p.m. So, wow. so I was like, I was hitting a wall with one of my chapters and I can't remember which one it was. And it's like two in the morning. Obviously, like everyone in the UK is asleep because of like time differences and stuff. So I was just like browsing on Twitter and I found some really dumb stuff. And I was just like, oh, I've got like a really funny idea for a bit. And no one was awake to like stop me from doing it. So I tweeted this thing, which was just like, I love being a doctor. 
and secretly converting babies to Islam and no one can do anything about it because everyone's afraid of being called racist. And I was like, okay, this is so stupid, but no one's ever going to believe it. <laughs> it's fine. I went to bed. I woke up like six hours later um, and suddenly like I have... 200 notifications everything's just gone crazy most people have found it to be a joke but there were like kind of tommy robinson allied supporters <laughs> who had picked up on it and they were like going insane about it right because for them like they view london as like this kind of sharia state anyway where muslims are taken <laughs> over so like for them it's like oh well this probably happened because in Whitechapel there are like public beheadings so you know just like all this crazy stuff about what they think <laughs> london is um and it all kind of culminated with saint thomas's hospital calling me up being like look we know that this was a joke but there's like been a person who keeps ringing up this hospital saying that they should fire this muslim doctor and we don't know what to say and i'm like i i'm so sorry i don't know what to do i'm gonna delete it now i didn't realize it would cause this much chaos and like you can imagine what it's like to just be in this like really weird suburban american town um, watching like all this chaos unfold like, <laughs> in another country. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So you deleted the tweet. In I the deleted end. the tweet, but the problem was was that a bunch of like these Tommy Robinson guys made copies of it. So like they're screenshots. Right. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah. it like circulates every so often, and like every so often, like someone will like tweet me with this thing, being like, "How come you're not fired yet?" And then I'll just make things worse by saying, "Well." Now I own the hospitals, so like, what what can you do about it? <laughs> um, which can be, re yeah. There are still sorry. There are there are still articles on on right wing news sites which um, yeah. are sort of calling for you to be sort of yeah. taken off Twitter because of those tweets. Right, and this is and this is why I'll never get hired by like any respectable news outlet because I've just caused too much <laughs> mischief. But then at the same time, I also think to myself that like I'm very fortunate to be in a place where I work at kind of a, a magazine that is doing some really interesting work and does a good mixture of serious journalism mixed with kind of like the satirical and bizarre commentary that you'd associate with like most internet culture stuff um so i've kind of got the best out of a bad situation uh or the best out of like a bad situation i've kind of created for myself i don't know whether how long that's going to sustain <laughs> for but right now things like seem to be okay in terms of answering a question about how do you balance the serious and the jokey jokey things um, I think for like most people, they can see the separation, um, or at least like most people who work in like the industry, because I think, I don't know, as kind of Twitter sort of becomes more and more bizarre anyway, um, <laughs> there are a lot more people who kind of just associate it with just like weird stuff rather than things that you'll get as like factual news and everything. And you can, we can like debate whether that's good, a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but I try to like separate the two and I think often a lot of my humor is so kind of bizarre and out there that i'd like to think people understand mm. the difference between the two but again like i can't that's not the same with everyone i can't you know but how, i guess now, now like a, a, a broader question on on like online personas and everything else i think like obviously your, your twitter feed is an example of like your online persona where it's, it's very yeah. varied and random at times and then speaking to you in person you come across as a lot more measured and thoughtful <laughs> yeah. and, and deep and introspective right. how, how do you like do, do you see it as like a separate persona online or are you just not showing us that crazy side to you right now in this conversation well, like how you know what yeah. i mean 
How does that all work? Because that's, just very quickly, that's something that I found is, is a big problem amongst young people generally yeah. that, um, you know, I, I, I had to learn how to use social media for myself yeah, yeah. and like how to present myself online. Yeah. And then you, you find people that are like the loudest people online, but the quietest in person, yeah. or the funniest online, but like the most boring person. Yeah, I, I'm not saying I, that's the case with you, obviously. No, no, I, mean, just, I, uh, I would absolutely <laughs> possibly say that I kind of fit in the second. I don't know. I mean, like, um, the, the the thesis that I kind of put out in my book was one where it was like, you can't necessarily separate the online from the offline. Um, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of the issues that we've had in terms of understanding internet culture is the fact that we've always treated it as a separate entity rather than kind of an extension of oneself or a place where like a person's kind of traits can be uh, accelerated or... Um, exaggerated you know or just like emphasized like a lot more than in real world settings mm. um so that's not to say that like the humor side isn't things that exist in my brain um i wouldn't like there's stuff that i wouldn't say like in public or like stuff that just wouldn't kind of land in public you just tweet it in public <laughs> right you just like tweet it in public but also i feel like on it is the same thing though let's be honest uh, it doesn't feel like the same thing though does right it, it doesn't feel like the same thing i think it can mm. be the same thing in the sense that we see the online world as like a public forum and when we have discussions about like well people can get fired for tweets or um people can kind of like politicians can be held accountable to a degree for like tweets um, no, but what I mean by it is, is like being racist on Twitter is the same as being racist in real life. Like yes. it, it, you're a racist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's where where the, the lines, the I lines think, almost about. need to be... No, but they need to be more blurred. In, in, in what I mean by that is right now, there's almost like, even, even the way that you're presenting it, yeah. there's like a distinction between, oh, well, this is just the online world. Like obviously in the real world, I wouldn't say that. But yeah, I, you know, I, the way that I've genuinely personally approached it is that I try and be as myself online as I am in person, yeah. so that there isn't that kind of um, weird distinction. I, now, tr I think yeah. trolling is a separate category. Um, Maybe I mean I would also say that like it's very rare to find people who present themselves online in the same way that they would do offline, um, unless. Well, obviously yeah. that that's a sorry, but presenting yourself online is an attempt at imagining what you how people perceive you and then you know putting that out back to them online if that makes sense Honest, i mean yes to a, yes to a degree but i also think that the online world also gives people the opportunity to be the type of version of themselves that they either want to be or they wish that they could be in the real world and i'll give you a story about this because this is a story that didn't make mm. it to the book and i really regret that it didn't because like whenever i talk about it i'm like oh that's kind of like the main thesis of the book is this is this an exclusive? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it might be actually. I've told people about Lovely. this like in whenever we've had sit down discussions. But anyway, so there's a, there was there was a cut of the book where I met a um I I wanted to just speak to kind of uh, religious young people on the internet, and I wanted to meet them in real life, and I just wanted to talk about like how they use their twitters. So I arranged to meet this guy. He had a Twitter account which like. And you've probably seen this before. If you looked, if you judged him just by his Twitter account, you'd be like, "Mashallah, he's like so religious. Um, he says all the right stuff. He gives all these Islamic reminders. He like gives all these reminders to the sisters to wear their hijab in a certain way, or the brothers to kind of observe their hijab by like wearing, you know, long sleeve trousers and all that stuff. Um, you know, he's someone who's like really, really devout. And I'm very interested in meeting this guy because I want to figure out how he leverages his Twitter account to." Um, spread the message of islam when we met i was really surprised because he comes in and he's like he looks like a really fat he like he's a road man right 
he like he's a guy who's wearing like a really tight like uh really tight uh tracksuit um you know he's wearing tons of cologne trying to like look at what you know trying to like explain it a bit more he had like you know his hair was styled in a particular way i don't think it was gelled but it was like done in this very kind of fashionable way and if you looked at me like you know you're not this guy who runs his twitter account like someone's like someone's like uh what you call it a uh, catfishing me right now um anyway it turns out that he is and i'm kind of like i'm really surprised about how you look because the way that i imagined you as someone and he, he was also completely cleanly shaven I was like, the way that I imagine you, you'd have this like long beard and you'd have this dog and you'd have all this stuff. And like, I've met people who like profess to be far less religious than you are who look this way. So I'm very confused mm. about this. And he goes, I'm not really that religious in real life. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, I don't really pray that often, even though I try to, you know, I drink alcohol sometimes, you know, I think he probably like did drugs as well. And I was like, well, why do you have this Twitter account if like <laughs> you're like living this life? And he goes, well, the Twitter account is like more of a way, more of like how I want to become. So my thinking, so his thinking was if he put out all these religious messages, if he gave all these Islamic reminders, then these reminders would also be reflections to himself. And it would be more of like his emphasis of like, I want to become a practicing Muslim, but I know that Islam is, you know, a, mm. it's not kind of an absolute, it's something that you work towards. So even though I'm flawed, like I'm trying to kind of become better every day until I get to that point. But in the meantime, like my online persona, at least my online persona is like the type of Muslim that I want to be. And wow. it was really bizarre, but I think about it, I'm kind of like, actually, this is like, this is a very common story about the internet because to a degree, a lot of people, try to present themselves in ways that are either flawless or ways in which are almost like aspirational. And that's not even religious, right? There are people who, you know, um, there are people who, you know, for example, like there are people who really profess the virtues of veganism online. But when you talk to them in real life, they're like, well, I eat meat sometimes. You know, I, I kind of fall mm. off the wagon sometimes. There are people who present themselves as very, very left wing, like socialists online. But when you meet them in real life, you know, they, uh, let's just say they like the finer things in life. Um, they're not necessarily <laughs> like what you expect them to be. Um, you know, so to a It's, it's yeah. interesting. Um, I think it reminds me of uh, the story of when you met your Islamophobic troll. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you met him in real life, mm. he was the sort of pathetic figure. But I think he was, he was definitely attracted to the power that sort of trolling and being sure. online gave him yeah. and it sort of elevated him into the status that wasn't being replicated in his real life. So it's, it's like similarly from an Islamic perspective or like from this guy's perspective of, of aspiring to be his online persona um, and that serving yeah. as the, the goal, if that Maybe. makes sense. Maybe. And also just, I mean, it was, for him, it was more about being part of this community. So it was more about the internet being a form of escapism from like his real life problems, being isolated, obviously, like as kind of a divorcee, as someone who doesn't necessarily have the best relationship with his kid. Um online presented this kind of cohesive community of people who like he felt had the same struggles as him and he also projected a lot of his struggles into like this national discourse so like the fact that he didn't mm. have the best of lives the fact that like he was struggling to kind of maintain his career like he maintained like whatever kind of jobs he had trying to kind of like get a relationship with his like you know so-called feminist daughter and everything for him these were all like reflections of national problems which was that like losing the country um, you know, and mm. we see that a lot with like the Brexit vote as well. When you talk to people who voted for Brexit, it's often not about kind of like the niche elements of like legislature, 
or about <laughs> like this kind of or even just like this cohesive vision of what the UK could be post-Brexit. For them, it's like a lot of it is projecting that, look, you know, we have a lot of these problems. We have a lot of kind of, you know, um, personal problems. And we think that actually, like, it's the fault of, you know, these ma- massive institutions of, you know, power that kind of create, you know, that make us like the underclass and make them kind of privileged classes. And to a degree, like, there is a certain degree of like legitimacy to that. But what I found interesting was that it was a way of projecting personal issues onto like big national conversations or like big national concerns so all of a sudden like you know you kind of being in a rut in your career is down to the fact that like muslim immigrants are taking your jobs or they're moving into your neighborhoods and like changing you know the pub that you don't ever go to but you just like seeing um into like a corner shop or something like that uh yeah do you know what i mean like so i think in both ways in, in both situations, even though both of these individuals have different reasons for kind of projecting a different persona of who they are in real life, um, the reason for doing so is partly out of escapism, but also partly out of like an aspiration to be part of something bigger. Yeah. Mm. And um, I guess m- moving on from that and, and looking at your, your book, um, I think the you know as, as I mentioned earlier, you kind of cover quite a wide spectrum, um, and and we we kind of picked out a couple of the chapters and a couple of the discussions I think that are quite interesting. Um, the first one in chapter one, you're talking about prayers and khutbas, um, and and how I guess at least how I see it, and and we probably come under it in some way, shape, or form as the Muslim vibe. But looking at decentralizing the mosque and moving away from the physical space and 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 the argument that i always put forward is that this isn't to to undermine or take away from the physical space of the mosque um but actually it's like a reality that young people spend time online the internet you know as you said on your commute you're spending a lot of time on twitter on social media that's what everyone does um for me um or, or for us at the muslim vibe we saw it as necessary to kind of bring the islamic conversation content talk about muslim culture everything else yeah. to muslims on on their terms yeah. um there's an interesting notion i guess about online imams and online influencers and 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 i guess i'll put the question to you is it just a clout game um <laughs> and, and obviously by that i mean is, is it just a, a case of people trying to gain followers and reach and and you know be more influential um how, how do you see the whole space it's a big question I don't know if it's necessarily like clout game for like for most of them it's more just like trying to kind of maintain healthier messages i think for like there were there are lots of imams that i met who were very reluctant to go online or to kind of like be online personas partly because they felt that they didn't want to be like these big public figures or they didn't want to be like these big influencers they just kind of wanted to serve local communities and everything so for all of a sudden to be like well you have to kind of you know your your own like local community is like turning to you know i kind of there, there was like an anecdote that i thought about a lot while i was writing which was um you know young kids in you know young kids in birmingham watching and having more affinity to lecturers in east london um than like yeah. the local mm-hmm. masjid and like vice versa uh the idea that like on the internet you know, it, it sort of makes sense in the way that you've got this generation of people who, for whom, like, lots of their formative friendships and lots of their formative relationships were kind of either influenced online or built entirely online. Um, the idea of having, like, online friendships with people or online relationships with people is not, like, a new concept, especially in our day and age, um, and especially at a time when, like, 
we've now got to a point where lots of Muslims are meeting their spouses on the internet. Mm. Um, so for lots of imams, it's kind of like, well, this is like a natural progression, but how do we do this? And how do we kind of take these traditional ways of disseminating messages by having modulises in like our context or like having, you know, Jumma Qutbahs and other concepts? How do we take that and kind of almost internationalize that to a degree? And that's like a big mm. challenge, right? I don't think that, I think for a lot of like imams and maulanas and stuff, this isn't an easy job, especially if you're someone who is trained in a very scholastic way and someone who is not necessarily like charismatic by the way in which kind of our media culture demands it. Um, so I think for some for some people, it is definitely is a clout game, especially if you are... I think, I think, sorry, mm. I, I think a lot of the imams aren't charismatic in the way that like, the congregation generally demands it, not even the media sphere yeah. generally. But also, for, but also <laughs> like, then you have this minority of people who are charismatic and they're like, this is a golden opportunity to take this huge share of like followers and supporters and kind of present them this message that we think is a benevolent message like for all these people mm. involved like the message that they're spread like they believe the message that they're spreading is a good message and they believe that they're mm. countering like bad messages there were so many kind of so many like groups and um even followers are kind of saying you know tell their moms like you need to be online because the young people are being fed all this kind of extremist stuff all this extremist material mm. um and they're really vulnerable and this was especially the case when like it, during kind of the years when ISIS were recruiting young British people to go join them. Um, you know, so like, there were a lot of pressures on imams. There was a group called like Imams Online, which like are a little bit controversial depending on who you speak to, but their mission was to try bring as many imams online as like on online platforms as possible. Um, you know, and that was their kind of argument that like, if you do not do this, if you do not spread and counter these messages, mm -hmm then extreme like charismatic extremist preachers are going to take over and like you know get charge of your youth um so i think for a lot of imams to answer your original question for a lot of your there a lot of imams they're trying to learn how to be online almost as a means of like sustaining their messages um mm. it's, it's not necessarily about the like their own local community but it's more about being part of like wider british society Mm. And so I, I guess we've talked about the decentralization of, of, sort of religion and, and practicing faith. Do you think that um, sort of the, the online the online khutbah space sort of detracts from the physicality of of being at a mosque? And mm. what, what role do you think mosques play in sort of bringing a community together? Yeah. And do you think that can be replicated safely and and in the sort of in the, in the same vein as you might expect uh in real life so i say in the book that the internet isn't going to replace masjid anytime soon and that's because it's not religion um in the sense that like you know the idea of like praying together is still very important the whole kind of concept of the jumma khutbah is one yeah. where like you pray and there are lots of people you know i go to a i go to a masjid for jumma and there are lots of i i notice that there are lots of people who don't come for the khutbah but they come for the prayer um yeah you know we've also we've also always seen like you know i don't i don't know about i don't know about you guys i'm not like trying to snitch on anyone um <laughs> but you know the, the kind of the, the guys who like smoke have, have you seen me walking late <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, was, I was talking about the, the guys who like smoke and vape outside while like the lectures going on and they come in afterwards for you know um prayers or like matam and stuff um of you know and i always used to think that they were like the coolest people when i was younger and uh, my dad used to always get very frustrated with me whenever I tried to like join in. Um, but <laughs> I feel like this is common in lots of spaces where it's like they'll come for prayers and they'll come for like the physical practice. Um, but 
the messages like sort of feel a little bit kind of separate separate for them so yeah. the idea of like the mudless will still stand right the idea that like you need physical mm. spaces of prayer will still stand but that's not necessarily and i think for lots of kind of masjid committees and even like for el- older generations they kind of think okay well that's fine because at least like you know the young people are coming for prayers and you know that's better than you know my dad says it was a lot like you know when I was younger, like there were lots of my um, cousins who just didn't do that. So surely that's yeah. a good thing. And I kind of think to myself, well, I think there's also like a hunger from our generation to understand our faith in kind of more contemporary terms and in terms mm. that are more relevant to the way that we live and the way that we exist. And also like the type of political situation we exist in um, at a time when, you know, prevent prevent strategy and all that stuff. Uh yeah. Oh, if if I can if I can quickly jump yeah, in here, I think that what's interesting about the whole physical versus online space is that when it comes to the physical space, you're often bound by location. Mm. So as you said, you know, I grew up going to the mosque with my dad, and obviously we're not going to drive forty five minutes. We, we we drove five minutes down the road to our local mosque, yeah. um, and and that then kind of governed what I took from you know what kind of community I'm in, be it ethnically also. Yeah. Um, is it a conservative yeah. or a liberal community and everything else yeah. and then when you contrast that with the online online you've kind of got the opportunity and the option to to sign up to loads of different communities and to be a yeah. part of loads of different groups right. and, and you mentioned kind of forum culture yeah. but like you have a similar space now with facebook groups and facebook pages yeah, and whatever yeah. else yeah. and facebook are trying to do that with you know incorporating things like top fan and and all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm where they're encouraging people to be more active in, in those little subcultures and communities. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like for, for younger people today, that choice that wasn't there previously when, when, when all three of us were growing mm-hmm. up, made you a little bit younger. I think, I don't know, I'm not going to ask <laughs> not about that ages. <laughs> you look a lot, you look a lot younger, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so we didn't have that, that option. Um, yeah. But now I, I personally think the options are a very good thing because it allows people to kind of broaden their horizons and and you know there are, there are countless documentaries there's that one documentary on netflix don't f with cats yeah um i don't know if you've seen I have, that yeah. but what what's crazy about that doc it, it was almost like something that you would have explored <laughs> once like if, if, if netflix didn't get there first you would have been yeah. on it um but what's what's mad about that documentary is that like it brought people together as a community who were like focused on a particular goal and it yeah. took their search around the world and like there's so much you can do now from from the confines of like your your dingy yeah. basement yeah. like bedroom um that just wasn't accessible or available before it's a, it's a different world essentially yeah it's like well it's a different type of and i think in the faith space it kind of presents opportunities and challenges because to a degree like facebook groups and stuff can be good if as you said there's like a unitary goal or if there's kind of like mm-hmm. an end point which is we're trying to find something or we're trying to find someone or we're trying to like get to an answer which i think explains kind of to a degree like the popularity of like true crime podcasts for example or true crime shows which is that you can kind of or even kind of um big series like games of thrones or um Mm. that weird netflix like dating show that everyone's talking about or like love island like love island is the best example of this right where you can get sorry i refuse to talk about love island (laughs) on the tmv podcast Um, moving swiftly on when people are kind of like united by a particular cultural category or um some like an ongoing event than like having lots of disparate Mm. groups and disparate people from different backgrounds and different kind of uh races and ethnicities and everything can be a really positive thing with faith with like the faith space i think it presents both challenges 
and opportunities. So you're right in kind of saying that what our current internet has done is kind of provide people with like more choice, but also more resources in which to learn and understand and to kind of like connect with faith on a much more individualized basis rather than as I think as we grew up, one that was inherently connected to our cultures and our families almost entirely um, to the point Mm. where like any sort of dissent was kind of discouraged or any sort of like real questioning was discouraged. Um, So I think that's kind of changed a lot. But I think on the other hand, that presents challenges in the way that you now have this like generational divide. So you have, you know, lots of young Muslims that I interviewed who have a very different version of how they practice Islam compared to their parents. And that causes like a lot of challenges. Um, You have even things like interracial marriage or intersect marriage um, is can be challenging for like families who, you know, believe in the kind of like sustenance of their culture to as much as possible. And one Mm. of the things that I say is that, you know, I'm very different from a lot of my cousins in the sense that my cousins all grew up in North London. So they grew up in, um, and I guess like where you guys are, um, they grew up in a much like uh, an environment where there were a lot more kind of, where there were a lot more Shias or a lot more kind of upper middle-class Gujarati families. And that's who they hung out with. And that's who they spent time with. Whereas I grew up in Kent and Southeast London where all my Muslim friends were Sunnis and they were mostly like Somalis or they were Pakistanis Mm. Um, and people that like my dad would not like me being friends with. Right. Um, But that was how I kind of during my formative years of like, especially like post seven, seven, when I'm really trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be a Muslim living in the UK when all of a sudden, like you're now being treated as an enemy, but you're, well, you're being treated as an enemy on one side, but on when you go to the masjid, like, they're condemning these kind of Sunni, you know, Wahhabi uh, extremists, like people who aren't like us. So you're in this really yeah. weird territory of trying to figure out who you are. And like the influence on both sides can be really confusing. So that's where you turn to the internet to kind of look for these answers. And often those mm-hmm. answers aren't necessarily like reflective of your community. They aren't necessarily things that you've had a lot of time to grow into and reconcile and all that stuff you were expected to reconcile that very quickly um so do do you know what i mean like that's kind of how it presents a lot of different cultural challenges because the thing that i kind of kept coming back to in my book was the idea that even though the internet presented some avenues in which people could kind of individualize their own faith experience and they could um personalize the way that they practiced islam um ultimately things like culture and things like physical geographic communities and family like those were things that you couldn't get rid of right they weren't things that became separate they would always exist so for a young person practicing faith like you would still have to reconcile that you've kind of come to your own conclusions about islam but like they won't necessarily match the expectations that your family or your community have and like that's going to be a real challenge for you going forward and of course, reconciling that is, is is one of the big difficulties. You you mentioned just now you were talking about like different sects, and yourself coming from a Shia mm-hmm. background and 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 you know having friends from a Sunni background. That's I guess one notable omission from the book is is the, the notion of sectarianism. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, I I think I mean we've we've done a video on the Muslim Bible a while ago where we had Shia Muslims reading out um, anti-Shia comments that they had seen online yeah, sure. and we had sunnis doing the same thing yeah um the other way and and a lot of what we're trying to do with the muslim vibe as well is that you know we have writers from from all different um islamic backgrounds yeah. and we don't kind of discriminate or or care even 
where people are coming from so long as the message is kind of aligned with a with a broad islamic um perspective yeah. but it, it's something that you kind of wholly didn't tackle yeah um yeah because i think it, it, I, the interesting thing is i think mm. online it's such a prominent discussion and debate and it's such a divisive issue yeah um but what was the thinking behind that from your perspective? all right so there's like three answers the first one i'll give you the boring one first which was that i just didn't like I had an 80,000 word limit and um, that would have taken, like there were a lot of sections which got admitted. So it wasn't just sectarianism that got admitted. There were a lot of stuff that got taken out in the final edit. Um, so part of it is just like book publishing being like not that great. The second was that a lot of stuff that I had reported on when it came to sectarianism was really interesting, um, but it also kind of delved into the very theological. So I spoke to a lot of Sunni imams and also Shia imams about um, how they how they were trying to like interact with online harassment and online sectarian uh, uh, like abuse and often I know I remember like transcribing all these interviews they would often delve into like really theological points and stuff that would be like this would be really interesting if I was writing a book about Sunnis and Shias in Britain but you we've spoken about basically nothing to do with online culture or like how to curb that. So like other than like Sunni Muslims have groups and Shia Muslims have groups and some of those groups are hostile towards each other. There wasn't necessarily like a through line about how the internet was kind of either making that worse or making that better. Um, and it was also really hard to get interviews with people who were like, so I thought one way of doing it was like, why don't I talk to someone who's like, like inherently like anti-Sunni or anti-Shia and like, let's see if we can kind of just figure out how the internet has kind of, made their vitriol like worse or you know different and none of them would speak to me like absolutely like i i got blocked by a bunch of like anti anti-shia people who saw my name and they were like no we're not talking to you goodbye um and then some of like the shia people were just kind of like they kind of gave me these one two words or two sentence answers which was just like well we're wrong what well, they're wrong and we're right i'm kind of like well it's not really what i was asking you but Okay. Um, so when we got to the end of the edit, I was kind of like, and I was really gutted by it because I thought it would be like a really personal thing to me. And also I was really excited to hear what my father's reaction would be if I, if I, I raised it. Um, but sadly that got cut out of the edit. So I think that was what it came down to. It wasn't that it wasn't, inter it wasn't an interesting topic, but it was one where it wasn't necessarily some, a conversation that was led by technology or emphasized by technology. Um, and the players that were in it was just very kind of, it would have been, it would have looked really weird to kind of like pass my own judgments in a book where like I was trying really hard not to pass any judgments, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, um, fair, I, I guess that, that's, that's fair enough. Coming back to, I guess, the book and, and kind of particular chapters, we're a bit short on time. So maybe we'll just talk about one, sure. one other bit. Um, Islamophobia and the alt-right. Okay. Uh, there's... So when we spoke last time, we spoke about the the gamification of the post terror attack, you know, uh, social media cycle. Let's call it. Um, and and what's interesting is like that, you know, there's been a few terror attacks that have taken place, unfortunately, in in the beginning of of, of 2020. Sure. And already you've had I've seen that uh, Family Guy picture where there's a picture of, yeah, of Peter yeah, Griffin yeah. and they've got that cut. Like that literally is the mm. first thing on your timeline when mm. you search the hashtag of any attack. Yeah. And it's 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 that placeholder content in between breaking news and something horrible has happened to like finding out the facts of of what the motivation was, who the guy was, what his name is, what his background is, and everything yeah. else. Um, 
so it, it, you know you were on the podcast like two two and a half maybe three years ago yeah. has anything changed I don't think anything's like really fundamentally changed. I think Twitter has kind of said that it's being more, and I guess every social media network has kind of said that we're, we're like more, um, we're, we're getting rid of more bots and we're getting rid of more kind of people who are sowing disinformation and like they kind of expanded their disinformation teams and everything. But the kind of principles are still there. So like whenever, so there was like the Hanau attack that happened very recently, right? And yeah. I, I was online when like that first broke out and the news was just like seven people have been shot in this uh, hookah bar in uh, Hanau, Germany. And you go to like your latest on your Twitter timeline and the people that you see are kind of, you know, it's all the kind of same stuff, like religion of peace, uh, you know, this is what happens when you let like Turkish people in, etc. And then it takes a few hours and then suddenly you realize, that, oh, this is a guy who is kind of allied to the alt-right. And then all these people either go quiet or they try to like justify by saying that, oh, well, he had like mental health issues or he wasn't really like a right-wing person or... But, yeah. but, then, the, but then the people on, on the other side of the spectrum, the left, then all pipe up and get excited. Yeah, and it causes like this other, you know, it's, and it causes this other... And there's this kind of game of like... But, and that's kind of where I think that virtue signaling, if you want to use that term, is kind of more apt because it's sort of like, well, who's... um you know, who's actually proven right in this kind of big question mark situation. Mm. And there's almost like the people who have gotten shot or people who have gotten killed, like us, like secondary collaterals to this online game that like everyone is sort of forced to play in the aftermath. Because I think we may have spoken about this when I came in last time, which was in the aftermath between a terrorist attack and like the information that comes out afterwards. There's a huge amount of anxiety about, well, you know, what happened? Who's in danger? Like, you know, what's going on, who this person is. And when people are anxious, they go online and like, you know, and it's almost like a recipe for disaster, but it's one where it's like, it's, it's, I, I think about this in terms of a broader level, which is it's really unhealthy that we've gotten to a stage in our society where whenever we're anxious, like, or whenever we're kind of afraid or we're worried, like we go on the internet almost looking for reassurance and we're looking for communities of people who are willing to kind of affirm either kind of our worst fears or our best expectations. Um, and it's almost as if we can't kind of cope with like just chaos in the world or like stuff happening, like things that are basically news. It's just really hard for people to kind of understand within like its individual context and not as part of this broader civilizational war. Right. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the stuff that we spoke about a couple of years ago, it's very much there, but it's almost broadened and it's intensified and it's kind of shown that as a society we are at a particular position and to kind of even get to a healthier place requires a lot of deconstruction and that deconstruction isn't just about dismantling social media but it's also about dismantling the way in which news is reported and it's dismantling like the notions of which we um understand particular situations because again like mm. most of the attacks that have happened recent like very like in the past kind of five years or so have been carried out by white nationalists or they've been carried out by alt-right groups or they've been carried out by people who are um allied with kind of these very online nationalist groups and that's a really hard thing for lots of people to get wrap their head around after a decade of like blaming everything on islam and islamists mm. and, like is uh, islamists and stuff if that makes sense yeah yeah that does make sense i think um we, we've sort of spoken about how the online world sort of opens up and sort of fills in this vacuum um 
what one of the benefits of the online world is sort of alternative media outlets mm-hmm. such as TMV to sort of uh, upturn the sort of narrative that you that you see in sort of mainstream yeah. media outlets. Um, what what role do you think sort of alternative media outlets have to play in the, in this filling this vacuum? I think it's going to become much more formative in the next few years, especially as so in the UK we have like a situation where you know most people are now very distrustful of like national media outlets including the bbc um yeah where there's still kind of a hunger and hunger for information but that information is becoming a lot more kind of localized and concentrated on citizen reporting and there's also like a battle going on between like who is you know leading independent journalism you know there's a lot of kind of like with right-wing independent outlets so to speak there's a lot of kind of funding coming from you know, outside donors and from place and from like, you know, dodgy think tanks and stuff like that. So for like progressive mm. independent media, like really like they are the last, uh, what's the right word? Like the kind of, um, the you know, the last kind of like means of checking on that and kind of, fact, you know, yeah. doing all that. I think for localized and independent media, like serving local communities is going to become a lot more important. So I think like mm. in terms of whether that's kind of reporting on like untold issues within the Muslim community or whether that's like reporting on a local community mm. fighting gentrification um, where national media outlets are kind of more concerned with cultural battles. You know, we've seen this with like the Brexit thing where the new like mainstream news was taken over so much by Brexit um, yeah. and so much by like national politics and elections and everything that we've almost completely forgotten that you know, one of the biggest issues, you know, we've still got like sky high poverty rates. We've still got like people in yeah, homelessness right. in London, you know, for example, yeah. everything's there. Right. We still got like most people like from the Grenfell fire who are still not housed properly. Right. And, mm. and it's kind of like independent outlets like Galdem and, um, you know, local newspapers that are operating in West London and even like podcasts, like podcasts run by young black people living in London who are the only, really the only people talking about like this ongoing government failure that government ministers just aren't in denial about, but just ignore entirely. So Mm. indie media is like, I think only going to become more important in the next few years, especially as the BBC kind of gets gutted and especially as like newspapers, like struggles to kind of maintain their stability and to do so, they'll kind of continue playing into like broader culture wars and we'll see less news and more kind of opinion driven so-called news yeah. right mm. so yeah. I, I think like it's 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 crazy like talking about the bbc the victoria derbyshire show recently got um i think yeah. it's due to be cancelled i'm not sure it's whatever. Minimize a lot. But it's been, yeah but w- whenever i've been home working from home or just getting to the office really late yeah um and ended up watching it because it's on at like 10 i yeah. think yeah um th- they're always talking about especially you know very very kind of niche community type matters yeah um, and and the problem is, as you said, like a lot of these things often just because Brexit, for example, dominates, you'll have half an hour news show pretty much about Brexit. And nowadays yeah. also about the coronavirus. Yeah. I was watching on a side note, I was watching, uh, I think, Sky News yesterday. And for about an hour, it was just talking about coronavirus. Yeah. And, 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 and whilst, of course, it's a very serious um, thing and, 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 you know, lives are being lost and everything else. But yeah. the world is still going right. on. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's so much more happening in the world. Yeah. That unfortunately is going kind of unreported, unspoken right. about. And you're right. I, I think, and obviously I'm a little bit biased, but I do think that that the independent media space is crucial in that, yeah. in being able to kind of bring things to light and approach things. Like the, the Hanau attack, for example, we tried to sort of 
give it as much coverage as we could because I personally felt, and I know others did online as well, that the mainstream media kind of gave it a second and then moved on. Like it, didn't make, the, it. it didn't make the front pages yeah. of any of, of the UK's yeah. um, national papers. Um, and when you contrast that with other terror attacks, yeah, um, it, it, there's a huge imbalance. And is it because immigrant lives don't matter as much as ours, yeah. you know, as, as the sort of natives? I don't know. I don't know what the reason right. is. And I think that lack of um, transparency also kind of, the lack of transparency and kind of just bringing it down to, oh, this is just about like logistics or it's about, you know, what what comes in at what time. And it's like, yeah. for news people like that might make sense because news people are very much in their own bubble. And like having experienced that bubble, like I can very much kind of say that, you know, the way that they talk about things in such a blasé way is really like disattached from kind of the way that people think and like the kind of aloofness to why there is such a lack of trust and there is like a lack of um respect to a degree towards like national media um really goes beyond them is like a surprising and unsurprising experience at the same time but i also think that you're right and this is much more to do with like the economy of news where you've yeah. got lots of people who are on kind of low contracted jobs where they're not being sent mm. out to kind of go do long reporting like the thing with derbyshire is they were very good at like just concentrating on a few stories but giving their reporters a lot of time to work on stuff yeah, and yeah. to kind of be like well cultivate like these sources and really tell the story in the best way possible and they did really really well but obviously time is money and where the bbc is kind of being told to cut back on lots of stuff it means that like stories about culture war related things where you can just like dm someone on twitter and be like do you want to come into our studio and like talk for 20 minutes with a couple of other people like you know that makes television um but it yeah. doesn't make journalism right um and this is where like local media like local media which are very poor like you know not as well funded although that is changing so i like it is worth kind of saying but like there are now better platforms in which um local media can kind of solicit donations and you know so things like patreon and stuff are kind of good ways of yeah but the the, the thing is that i mean the platforms are there but i still think the mentality necessarily isn't amongst their um audience base because you know in a world where we consume everything for free like you know even even wikipedia yeah. funny enough have these kind of adverts for money yeah, so yeah, the yeah, guard yeah. and everything else yeah but what percentage and, and, and it's a volume game for them so like wikipedia have obviously millions of hits i'm assuming a yeah. day um even a very small fraction 0.0001 percent of people donating is, is probably going to be enough or, or a lot of money yeah. whereas in contrast to smaller platforms yeah um it's it's going to be a bit of a struggle yeah. um to be honest we're, we're actually a little bit out of time and i think yeah. we could we could keep chatting yeah. for, for hours on all of this stuff there's there's like so much that we didn't discuss we want to talk about incel culture as maybe well. next time maybe, um, maybe in a few months may, you could like hang out if, if you're if you're committing if you're committing to to a conversation on incel culture in a few months i'll have to yeah i'll, 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 I'll come uh, in i'll come in as well this time I'm not going to hold my breath on that one, but, uh, <laughs> um, but no, genuinely, like I, I, I think one thing that you you've done very successfully is be able to deep dive into the internet, and obviously you're a, you're a part of that culture, but also yeah. bringing to light um, all these kind of subcultures and and understanding. I think it's fundamentally important. And as like as I grow older, personally. I had to like download and 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 explore TikTok just to understand what the hell it was, yeah. and I still don't get it. I don't even like, yeah, <laughs> like me I, and you both, man. 
<laughs> I spent a few hours on it. I was just like, I can't, I can't even get on board with this. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas like before, when when mm. Vine came around and then died subsequently, yeah. like we could, we could, we could get on board with that. We knew what was happening. We understood it. It was our culture. Yeah. But now, like as time goes on, like there are different subcultures forming for different age ranges, yeah. and mm. and it's just almost impossible to keep up. But I think you know what you've done with your book. Um, the book's called Follow Me Aki, by the way. We didn't say that, or Aki, if you want to be a bit more like Arabic about it. Um, but but like what you've done with the book is is kind of dip into loads of different places, and and I think shine a light very brilliantly on 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 the, the diversity that that exists. Yeah, thank you. And as I said, like you, you probably need to do another one in five years. You can just do the same thing again. I'm hoping. Um, I mean, I'm and, hoping, but and it'll yeah. look entirely different. Yeah, I'm hoping that they'll let me do like a rejoinder, like or a second edition where I can like talk about TikTok. Yeah, and sectarianism, hopefully. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes. And you can chuck in the psychedelics as well. I, yeah, I think we'll, figure out, well. we'll figure it out. What a combo. What, yeah. what, I can say, what I can say is like an ending point is that like since the book came out, I've only like found even more bizarre communities. Because when the book came out, like a bunch of people who were part of these bizarre communities like read it and they were like, oh, this is amazing. But you didn't like feature my group in. And like these groups are kind of like, you know, weird meme groups like Muslim, like Vaporwave, like Vaporwave producers. Um, and I'm kind of like I just didn't even know that you guys existed, and like the fact that there's still so I, much I don't know there. I don't know what these words exactly what these words right mean. exactly like I you know <laughs> and, we, and if I even explained like I would go way beyond the time that I've already gone beyond. So yeah, yeah. no, like even even like I, I mentioned incel culture, I I, I know like five percent of of what that is and, and that whole thing. I, I funny enough saw like a, a a mini documentary that BBC Three had produced about a guy called Elliot Roger, yeah, um, who became like an incel uh, hero. Um, for going on like some deadly rampage. Anyways, look, we're not going to get into this whole topic now. I think it's definitely worth discussing. And, and I'm sure by that time, when we sit down again, there'll be like 10 other random terms that have been created mm. to describe various other subcultures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess thank you. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. And, I appreciate and, that. Um, let's do this again soon. Okay, Thanks, cool. Hussain. No worries. Thank you so much. So Nate, first time on the podcast. First time. How did you find it? Uh, it was interesting. It was it was with my hero as well. So it was a <laughs> hero. Hero. Well, hero is a strong word. Hero, hero is a strong. Word. I was talking about you. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's. I think there's there's a lot to think about. I I think what was interesting was kind of looking at the two examples of the um, Hussein, the guy that was trolling Hussein. Yeah. Um, and and the guy that had the the Islamic page. Um, and and was posting you know really religious motivational inspiring stuff yeah but then like w w was then like opened or, or admitted to Hussein to like drinking occasionally and whatever else yeah but but there is that kind of I, I feel the online space is is um, it's an interesting one it's an interesting one and that's why I think it was so important to explore it and yeah. especially sort of drilling down into the intricacies of being a Muslim uh, on the online space and it's it's something that you don't necessarily see in, in mainstream media, that sort of um, compassionate lens viewing Muslims, whereas usually you usually get the opposite. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of your personal experience, uh, yeah. being on, on, on a podcast, this is the first podcast you've ever done? This is the first podcast that will be released. That, that oh, wow. We've done one, but it, it's sitting somewhere and, and we, haven't, we haven't done anything. Who, who's we? Uh, me and some uni friends, we um, decided to make a podcast. So we sat down in my friend's room in, in South in South London and put put one together. But it hasn't uh, received the light of day yet. So. Will it ever? 
Uh, I don't know. Here uh, and get back to me on that. So <laughs> if you're listening, here and what's going on, mate? Um, but yeah, well, I, I, you're, you're leaving us tomorrow. I am. Yeah. So I, I don't know if 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 you're ever going to be associated with the Muslim vibe ever again. Well, forever. Forever. Forever and ever. This you, is. Oh, is this, this us? Yeah, this is us. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for co-hosting on this occasion. Yeah. Um, for people who are listening to this podcast, I I hope you've made it this far in. Um, because I feel like maybe people don't because every time I ask people to basically obviously subscribe if you haven't already but I think we have quite a few subscribers now our, our listeners are kind of going and the listens are going up yeah. but I also ask people to give us a five star rating on whatever podcast app that they use but they don't for some reason oh. but, but it's not that they give like a four star or a th- they just don't give any rating um, that's worse than that's worse than but giving it, a bad it, it makes me worry that they don't get this far. People are lazy, I think. No, but I, I, I think I, that's the one thread I've got from humanity is that they're lazy. Is that your your one thread that you got from the three weeks at the five? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are lazy. Yeah, um, it's been quite a productive few weeks that you've been here. Actually. It has. Like we, it we've, has. We've, we've like yeah. Right, let's let's move on. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, no, thank you guys for for listening. As as I did mention, like do give us a a, a five stars, thumbs up, whatever. Leave a nice review. Um, would be much appreciated. Um, yeah, that's it. Take care.